All right, well, let's pray, and we will open up God's Word this morning. Thank you, Father, for all these things that have been shared. Thank you for the love that's here. We love how your body works, how your family works. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the unity that you give. Different ages, different races, different backgrounds, socioeconomic, all these differences, but we are one. We love each other in in Christ, and so thank you. I love how you do that here. And Lord, I pray that you would powerfully work through your word this morning. That you would uh, not just let this be words on a page or words that that are, are heard, but that you would, by your spirit, speak great encouragement great strength, great comfort, great power to us, I pray. So come and do that, Lord. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Well, I want to start off just by giving you a a picture of what the Christian life is like. This is a picture. I'm going to give some backdrop to the passage for this morning. But the Christian life is, is like being part of an army platoon 50 miles behind enemy lines. So you are in enemy territory, okay? And your mission is to bring as many prisoners of war with you as you can and to advance those 50 miles to, to get safely home, to get out of you know, enemy territory into, in, into, into home, home turf. So that's the mission. And there's two, at least, but there, there's two huge problems we face. One is that the enemy of sin, which is around us, is deceptive. So we're going this 15 miles, and the enemy of sin is deceptive, and, and sin can, before we even see it, it can be right there ready to overpower us. So one problem is that sin is deceptive. Second problem is that sin is powerful, so even if we can see sin, it can still overwhelm us. So here we are, 50 miles behind enemy lines. We've got to go get safely home, bring as many prisoners of war as possible, and we have sin which can deceive us and sin which can overpower us. Which sounds hopeless, right? This is not going to happen. But here's the good news. God loves us, cares for us, gave Jesus to us to die for our sins and, and forgive us, and, and he has given us two weapons. One weapon which can expose every deception that sin will bring against you. Every deception. And so that you can steer clear. Oh, there's that sin. I'm going to steer clear. And the other weapon which can, when you do bump up against sin, can overpower that sin. So here you are, 50 miles behind enemy lines. You've got the enemy of sin between you and home. I want to bring as many prisoners of war with us as can, and we want to get safely home. And we now have two weapons, one which can expose every deception of sin and the other which can overcome every power of sin, which is so encouraging because like, let's go. Let's bring the prisoners of war in. Let's get home. Now, that's taught in this next passage in Hebrews chapter 4, that God has given us these two weapons, one to expose sin's deception and the other one to conquer sin's power. So turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to be starting at verse 11 this morning. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, as we always say. I want you to have a Bible in front of you so that you can look on this passage with us as we're studying. Hebrews 4 is on page 1002 in the Bibles that we're passing out. So let me just kind of bring you up to speed in terms of what we covered last week, and then we'll segue into verse 11 and the, and the section for this morning. In last week's passage, the author of Hebrews tells us 
that because of what Jesus Christ has done in dying for our sins and in rising from the dead, because you're trusting him, your certain destiny is what he calls God's rest. And again, this isn't because you've been good enough. This is because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Because you're trusting him, all your sins are forgiven, and your certain destiny is God's rest. And it's God's rest, which means that when you enter heaven, you will be with him face to face, revealed in the person of Jesus, the one in whose presence is fullness of joy, at whose right hand there are pleasures forever. Ever increasingly, forever, you're going to enter God's rest. And you're going to enter God's rest, which means at that moment, the battle will be over. No more fighting unbelief. No more battling off sin. No more struggling against temptation. At that moment, it'll be rest. No more battle of sin there in God's rest with him and all the redeemed forever. So that's where the author leaves us in verse 10. And now look at what he says in verse 11. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as as Israel had fallen into, which is the previous verses. So let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, that word strive might puzzle you. Because in some Christian circles, striving has a negative connotation. But I want to let you know that in the Greek language, striving has no negative connotation. It simply means to exert great diligence and effort. Some translations, I think, say, uh, be diligent. That's what the New American Standard says here. So there's no negative connotation. The author of Hebrews is saying, exert great diligence and effort to enter God's rest. Okay, but now, why do we need to do that? It's secured for us through the cross, right? Why do we need to strive to enter his rest? Why do we need to exert great diligence and effort to enter God's rest? It's not because we have to make ourselves good enough to earn it or deserve it. Let's just get that idea completely out of our minds. Okay? The only way we can come into God's presence in his rest, the, the basis for our being there is nothing about our goodness. It's all about Jesus' death on the cross, paying for our sins. So we're saved because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, and the moment that you trust him, all your sins are forgiven past, present, and future, and you're clothed, you're, you're clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness which covers your remaining sin. So it's on the basis of his blood and his righteousness. That's the only way that we can be entered into, welcomed into God's rest. So we don't need to strive because we've got to get good enough to earn or deserve entrance. Are we clear on that one? But we do need to strive to enter, right? So why? Okay, read the whole verse. And see how he answers that question. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So we must strive so that we will not fall into the same kind of disobedience that Israel fell into. Remember, Israel had been freed from Egypt but then on her way to the promised land fell into disobedience and ended up not entering God's rest. And so he says, strive so that won't happen to you. Which means that if we don't resist sin, 
that would happen to us. Really? Yes. Now here's, here's the picture. Remember the Niagara Falls illustration? Okay, because of our sin, we are in a river which is, is flowing towards destruction. Our, our sin is carrying us away from God. It's carrying us towards God's destruction. Our sin, our unbelief, is carrying us there. There's a, there's a mighty river with a massive current that's relentlessly moving us towards going over the falls to our destruction. But God, in great mercy, has saved us. And he did two things when he saved us. Both of these are crucial to get. First of all, he threw us the rope of God's word, his word. All that God promises to be to us in Christ Jesus. God sees, saw you going down that river. Destruction was there. Relentless current. Nothing you were doing to get out of it. And he, he threw you the rope of the truth of who Jesus Christ is, his life, his death, his resurrection, all that he promises to be to you, and you latched onto it. And so you're holding on to that. But see, if you're holding on to it in the river, then you're, you're feeling that river, it's pulling on you. You've got to keep holding, right? And as you keep holding, that rope of God's saving work will not just keep you from going over the falls, it will pull you all the way until you enter God's rest on shore. That's one thing he's done. But now you could think, so God's up there in heaven and he's watching us and he's saying, I sure hope they hold on. I mean, that current is strong. What if they're not able to hold on? So there's a second thing he does when he saves us. He doesn't just throw us the rope, but he works in our heart and he promises that he, by his power, will keep us holding onto the rope all the way to the end. He promises, the Philippians 1.6, the good work he started, he will continue it all the way until the end. So he will keep you holding on firm to the rope, okay? And one of the ways he keeps us holding firm onto the rope is giving us hearts that obey, verse 11, strive to enter God's rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So right now, you've been saved. The Holy Spirit has given you a heart to hear this command and to say, yes, I'm going to strive. And all that's the way that God works to keep you holding. He works in your heart through the word. He gives you power. And he will keep you holding all the way to the end because what happens if you let go? The current will take you back, right, to destruction. So he's saying, hold on, lest the same thing happen to you that happened to Israel. Okay? So he will keep you holding on. And to do that, he tells you, you must keep holding on. You will, because you've been saved. And one of the ways he does that is he says, you must keep holding on. That's why we must strive to, to hold on to all that God has promised to be to us in Christ Jesus. When you're holding on, he's the one who's enabling you to do that. He will keep you enabling to do that all the way to the end. But we must. We will, by his power, and we must, which is what this passage says here. So when we feel unbelief rising up into our hearts, like bitterness or complacency or prayerlessness or jealousy or just kind of being full of myself, you know, when you, when you feel unbelief rising up into your heart, what we must do is we must strive against it cling to who all that God promises to be to us in Jesus Christ so you don't get swept away to destruction. Okay? And because God has saved us, we will. And we must. And we will. And we must. 
and we will, okay? But now there's a problem. It's not quite as simple as that because sin can deceive us. Remember Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceptive. I mean, if, if Satan came to you all the time, like in you know, red tights and little pitchfork, I mean, you could clearly tell that it's Satan, okay? But Paul says he can come as an angel of what? Light. Angel of light. Sin doesn't always come like, disobey God. Do this and disobey God. Sometimes sin will come that way. Sometimes that'll be how temptation goes. But a lot of the time, it's not how temptation goes. Sin is deceptive. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of, of sin. So here's some examples, I thought. Your heart could say something like, you know, it's okay to just take that extra time off work that you're not supposed to because, I mean, they're not paying you what you're worth anyway. You're making them a lot more money than they're paying you for. It's kind of got a nice ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's, okay, this, that's deception. Okay, please, this is not what I'm encouraging you to do. But you see how plausible that could sound? Or something like, you know, I don't need to share the gospel with anyone. It's just, it's just that's not me. It's just not me. Well, we don't want you to do anything that's not you. Well, no, that's not right. That's deception, see? Or, you know, I'm not going to care for the poor. I mean, I, who knows how they're going to end up using the money anyway? I'm just not going to do that. That's deception. Or, you know, it's okay for me to drink too much. I mean, do you know the day I've had? Okay? Do you understand the kind of day I've had? Or whatever along those lines. See, now, this is so important for us to understand because our culture today is very much about following your heart. Just follow your heart. That is terrible counsel. Because the heart is deceitful above all else, Jeremiah tells us. So, what are we going to do? Sin is deceptive. There's things that we can feel are so right, and they're not. So what can we do? Because if you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived, right? If you know you're deceived, then you're not. It's when you are not that you are, okay? So what can we do? How can we avoid being deceived by sin? And I love verses 12 through 13. So remember, we're in enemy territory, got 50 miles to go. Sin is deceptive, and God gives us a weapon that will expose every deception that sin brings us. And you can see that in verses 12 and 13. Look at what he says. Four, crucial word. Here's how we're able to strive to... Enter the rest. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God is living and active. God has empowered his word. So it's, it does something we desperately need. You open up the word of God, pray over it, ask God to move in your heart, and it'll, it'll do something that you desperately need. And what is it that you desperately need? The author says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And I think the point is just simply that it will slice through every thought, every attitude, every feeling, every excuse, every rationalization. It'll slice through everything in your heart and do what? Underline that word discerning. It will discern the thoughts and intentions 
of the heart. So the word of God is able to slice through all of your thinking, feeling, impressions, attitudes, opinions, rationalizations, justifications, and show is that faith or is that unbelief? Is that sin or is that righteousness? Is that God or is that the devil? Is that right or is that wrong? It'll slice through everything in your heart and discern what's really going on. This is beautiful. Don't you love this? And here's why that's so crucial. Verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Here's what that means. God sees everything as clear as as can be. He sees everything in your heart for exactly what it is, faith or not, right? Following Christ or, or being deceived. He sees exactly what's going on in your heart, and the word of God will help you to see yourself exactly as God sees, so that you'll know this is good or this is sin. Got to deal with it. Okay, so you'll know. You don't need to wonder. You'll know. The Word of God will do that. It'll discern the thoughts and tensions of your heart. And see what good news this is? So here we are. We're a platoon of soldiers. Got 50 miles of enemy territory to go through. We got to gather as many POWs as we can and, and bring them safely home with us. But our enemy's sin is so deceptive that he can be right in front of us before we even know it and it's too late. Okay? But... The word of God is able to, there they are, they're over there. Let's go this way, okay? Oh, wait, they're over there too. Okay, we're going to go right through here. Okay, nice. Okay, see how it works? The word of God will always expose, always reveal when something in your heart is sin and deceiving you, always. But now to to activate this weapon, the book says, there's there's a couple steps. You got to open it, Okay? To activate this weapon, you've got to open it. Step one, open. Step two, read. Okay? Step three, think, pray, ponder, meditate, whatever other words you want to use. Okay? It's like you've got one, but you've got like to lock and load it. You've got you know, you to pull the trigger on it. You've got to use the weapon. But see, the good news is that you have been given a weapon that God promises will expose every deception you'll ever face. Don't you just thank you, Father. I mean, what a gift. What a gift. Okay, now here's an example. Let's say that um, you were, you applied for a promotion at work, and Friday, it's last Friday, you heard that you didn't get it. And the guy who got it uh, has been there less time than you. You trained him. You know all of his weaknesses. He is not skilled for this job. Um, you covered for a lot of his mistakes. Made him look good in front of the boss. And he lied about how much he contributed to the team. And you are furious. You feel the bitterness? This is your promotion. This was, this was yours. This is completely wrong. It's completely unjust. I mean, you help this guy, and then he lies? And you're just fuming. You feel it? Feel the bitterness? Feels right, doesn't it? I mean, come on. Really? I mean, let me tell you. Let me tell you more. I want to tell you everything that happened here, okay? So, so you're feeling the bitterness. Now, you're deceived because it feels so right. It feels so right. So Saturday morning, this is Friday, bitterness, didn't get the promotion. Saturday morning, you wake up and you sit down at your kitchen table or go to your desk and you 
Open up the Bible. This weapon which can expose every deception. Okay. And that morning you happen to be reading Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, which says, Let all bitterness be put away from you. Whoa! Zing! Ah, it's unbelief! This is sin! This is wrong! Okay? Now, it doesn't mean that the other guy getting the promotion was right. Let's assume that that was dead wrong. Let's assume there's all kinds of political cronyism, all kinds of other stuff going on. Let's just assume that was dead wrong. But your bitterness is wrong, too. Your bitterness is wrong, too. And so you open up the Word of God, and He promises that as we use this weapon, He will show us when our thoughts, feelings, inclinations are deceptive. Don't you love that about Him? So you'll be able to discern when sin is, is coming towards you. Uh, let's go this way. Bitterness, bitterness, that, that looks so right. Oh no, it's sin, let's go this way. Okay? So that's one weapon he's given to us. But now, at this point, there's another problem. Okay? You're still feeling bitter. Okay, reading those words doesn't necessarily, boom! No, you're still, you're feeling, you're, you're bitter. You are bitter. So what can you do? What should we do when we see sin rising in our hearts, like, like bitterness in that example? And look at verses 14 through 16. I love these verses. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So see, he's talking here about the issue of temptation. So let us then, verse 16, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As I studied those verses, uh, I saw two steps he's calling us to take. Okay? Two steps to take. And the first is in verse 14. And here's how I'm just going to summarize it. He says, Hold fast to your confession that Jesus Christ is your forgiving and sympathetic, sympathizing high priest. He's your forgiving and your sympathizing high priest. Start with the word forgiving. Notice verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is our high priest. Now, if you're new to following Christ, you may not know the background to this. It's really crucial to get it. And as in the Old Testament, with the people of Israel, God had there be a a high priest. High priests were appointed, as a man appointed on behalf of the people, to offer sacrifices before God for their sins so they could be forgiven. That's what the high priest did in the Old Testament. One of the reasons God had there be high priests was so we could more clearly understand the wonder of what Jesus has done for us because Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus, the Son of God, became man so that he could offer a sacrifice to God on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. And what was the sacrifice that he offered? It was himself. And so Jesus, through dying on the cross, has been the full and complete sacrifice to pay for all of our sins. And so part of our confession 
that we hold to is that Jesus is our forgiving high priest. He's our forgiving high priest. That's the first part. Second part is he is our sympathizing high priest. Look at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's been tempted in every respect as we have, okay, yet without sin. So he can sympathize when we're tempted, right? He says to us, I have felt, I felt that pull. I know what that's like. Yes, that's hard. He has felt the pull, okay, without sinning in any way. He knows how hard sin can pull, and so he sympathizes with us when we are being tempted. So, we've used the sword of the Spirit, it's sliced down, it's shown that bitterness is unbelief. That bitterness is sin against God. He says, put, put all bitterness away. What do you do? First step, hold fast to your confession that Jesus Christ is your forgiving and sympathetic high priest. So here's what that means. Here's what I want you to do. When you're in this situation, I want you to see, to look at Jesus, and when you see him, I want you to see that he is looking towards you. He's, he's offering you forgiveness. Okay? Not only is he offering you forgiveness, he says, as you're looking to him by faith, that sin's already been forgiven. Okay, so, so you're looking to him in your bitterness, and he, as you're looking to him by faith, he says, that's forgiven. So he's there offering forgiveness, and he's feeling sympathetic towards you. Some of you really need to get this because you haven't really caught on to this. He's not saying, are you kidding me? Bitterness? Come on, you guys. Get with it. He's saying, I know. Oh, I know. That, that is, that's hard. That is hard. So, so Jesus is standing before you and he's saying, there's forgiveness for you and I am sympathetic with what you're going through. That's the confession we hold to. He is our forgiving and our sympathetic high priest. That's the first step. Hold fast to that confession. Okay, but don't stop there. Too many Christians stop there. Okay, they see Jesus, you're you're forgiving and you're sympathetic. You're forgiving, you're sympathetic, and then they stop there. But don't stop there. Crucial second step in verse 16. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So see, when you feel bitterness rising up in your heart and you read Paul who says, let all bitterness be put away from you, what do you do? You don't stuff it. You don't pretend it's not there. You don't, well, I'll think about something else. 49ers, you don't use mental techniques. What you do is, first of all, you see Jesus Christ, you are there as my high priest right now. Forgiveness through the cross, thank you. And you are sympathetic towards me. And listen, what happens when when you're feeling this bitterness and you see Jesus with forgiveness and with sympathy towards you? Aren't, aren't, isn't your heart just like drawn towards him? You think, I, I want to I come, I want to be in his presence. I want to be in the presence of the one who's forgiving and who's sympathizing. He says, I'll, I'll forgive you, and I understand. And doesn't that just draw your heart towards him? But see, if you think that he's like going to be responded with judgment, and like, are you kidding me? Bitterness? You're not going to want to draw near to him, are you? 
This is so crucial for you to understand. He is standing before you with forgiveness, and he's standing before you with sympathy. And when you see him with forgiveness and sympathy, you, in your bitterness, you're looking towards him saying, help, you just want to come because you're going to be, he's going to sympathize with you in your bitterness, and he's going to forgive your bitterness. You want to come to him. And then when you come to him, here's what happens. You turn your heart towards him. You draw near to him. You say, "I'm, I'm bitter. I'm feeling totally bitter over this promotion. Total bitterness over it. And Paul says to put all bitterness away. I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm bitter. I lost the promotion. It's wrong. It's unjust. But you're offering forgiveness. Thank you. I'm forgiven. And you are sympathizing with me. Thank you. Help me, Lord Jesus. Help me. And then as you ask him for help, and as you see more clearly who he is in the word of God, seeing who Jesus is will, will, will change your heart. You, you will always receive from him the grace, the mercy, and the grace to help in time of need. Every time. I mean, read verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is there anyone who will ever, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, who won't receive mercy and grace to help them in the time of need? No, everyone will. Every single time that you draw near to the throne of grace, you'll receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Now let me explain how that might work with this bitterness thing. Okay, you might be thinking, okay, how is that going to work? How does that happen? I'll give you an illustration. Imagine that right after you got passed over for that promotion... Okay, and you're feeling the bitterness is just rising up and you're, you are just, your heart is on fire with bitterness. But imagine that 30 minutes after that happened, you found out that you won the Powerball lottery. Okay, 136 million after taxes transferred into your account. Now here's my question. You just won that. Would you still feel bitter over losing the promotion? I mean, maybe, but I, can't, I couldn't imagine how. I, I tried to think of how that might be. I couldn't think of any way. Your bitterness would be changed. I mean, your heart would really be changed. Not because you're squashing it, squelching it, stuffing it, denying it, pretending it's not there. No, your heart would be changed. Truly changed, wouldn't it? You're not like pretending. You are not bitter anymore. I am not bitter at all anymore, Okay. See how that works? What does that have to do with Jesus? In Jesus Christ, you have a lottery-sized treasure that makes the Powerball look like pennies in your pocket. Through Jesus Christ, all your sins are forgiven. And you have him as your treasure in an ever-increasing way. Now, through this life, he's going to orchestrate everything to bring you even more joy in him and then forever in an ever-increasing way so that your heart is just ecstatic with beholding him and ravished with beholding him and filled with knowing him in whose presence there is fullness of joy. You have a lottery-sized treasure in Jesus Christ. Okay, so, why are you feeling bitter then about the promotion? Well, it's because at that moment, and I felt bitter, because at that moment when I'm feeling bitter, I'm not seeing Jesus as my lottery-sized treasure. All I'm seeing is I lost the job. The job was what I'm looking to for my treasure right now, not Jesus anymore. 
Bitterness will not change until the Holy Spirit does a supernatural work. So that I'm seeing that Jesus Christ is my infinite treasure. I would have loved that job, but I have him. And the worth of who Jesus is swallows up the loss that I experienced from not getting the promotion. That's how Jesus conquers sin. That's how he really changes our feelings. Not by squashing them, stuffing them, denying them, pretending, you know, mental techniques, looking the bright side, he's going to get chewed up and spit out by that job, you know, yeah, it's all right. None of that kind of stuff. It's by seeing Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I, I have forgotten all about you. All I was thinking about was the job. Help me. Show me who you are again. Let me pull out my, my checking account. That's right, there it is, $136 million. Okay, yes, all right. I remember, I remember. And your bitterness will diminish. So when you let this word of God, the sword of the Spirit, slice through your thoughts and your attitudes and your rationalizations and your justifications, so that, and you see, oh, it's bitterness, and Paul says bitterness is wrong. And then when you hold fast your confession that Jesus is my forgiving and satisfying high priest, that is, he's standing before me, and as I'm looking to him by faith, I'm forgiven for that bitterness. Just I come to him as I am, in my bitterness, I'm forgiven for it, and he's sympathizing with me, which makes me want to draw even closer to him. And as I draw near to the throne of grace and say, help me, change me, free me, show me again who you are. I am, I am blind to who you are right now. All I'm seeing is I didn't get the job. I'm blind to you. Sin is blinding me. Help me. He will work by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word to show you again what a treasure he is, and your bitterness will be changed, just like when you heard about getting the Powerball lottery. So we're in enemy territory, 50 miles to God's rest. Our mission is to bring as many POWs with us as possible. We face sin which can deceive and sin which can overpower. But God's given us two weapons. His word, which can expose every deception of sin, and his throne of grace, which can overcome the power of sin. Okay, now what, what questions does this raise up in your mind? Am I in track with the scripture? How's that work? How about this situation? Oh, that's a good question. Which promises, passages of Scripture, do we find most helpful for seeing the lottery-sized treasure we have in Christ? Um, I'll share some of them. Let's, this would be great. Let's pool our resources here, okay? So where do you turn? You're feeling the bitterness, lost the job. I understand, but I'm not feeling Jesus right now. So... Um, I was thinking this week about Revelation chapter 1, I think it's verse 5. Him who loves us and delivered us from our sins by his blood. That was a precious verse for me two days ago in my Bible reading, Revelation chapter 1. Talking about Jesus, him who loves us and delivered us from our sins by his blood. But you know, Mark chapter 1 and 2, I mean, Jesus healing some in Peter's mother-in-law, it's beautiful what he does. And then Jesus, knowing the scribes, in, this is chapter 3, knowing the scribes and Pharisees are looking to see, is he going to heal somebody on the Sabbath? And then he's in trouble with us. we got the power. And Jesus just says, be healed. He knows what the Pharisees are going to do, and he's just fearless. Okay, so Mark 1 and 2, Revelation chapter 1. Let's hear from, from a lot of us here. What scriptures have you found helpful recently to help you feel the treasure you have in Jesus? Yes, sir. Okay, go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, what came to mind is something that's also in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, 
refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. 26. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Beautiful. So Hebrews 11, 24 and 25. And 26. Thank you very much. That's good. What else? Do not be anxious for anything, but but look to him. Okay, Philippians 4. All right, good. What else? This is this is fun. Was there somebody else over here? Or, uh, okay, Marsha. Verses that help us see the treasure that we have in Jesus. Go ahead, Marsha. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Beautiful. And that's 1 Corinthians? Okay, it's 1 Corinthians 1 or 2, I think. Uh, well, this is not exactly about God's... It's a little bit off, but um, it's Matthew 11, the last part of verse 19, and it's Jesus saying, but wisdom is shown to be right by what results from it. Good, good. A lot of wisdom there. Thanks, Natasha. Go ahead, Justin. John eight twelve. it says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You have to pray over it. You are the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Everything else is darkness. He's the light. Chris. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. When you go and you sell everything you have, you go buy that field. Or it's like the pearl that you found. You sell everything you have and you get that. And there's nothing else that's that valuable. Matthew 13:44. That's a, that'd be a great verse to memorize. Really good. Chuck. Psalm 23, any part of it. But even though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, he is with us, his rod and his staff, they comfort us. Psalm uh, 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, what will happen is, I mean, these verses can just seem like words on a page. It's like I'm hearing them. But see, what the Holy Spirit will do as you pray over these words, he will do what Paul prays in Ephesians 1.16. He will enlighten the eyes of your heart. Your heart's eyes are, are dulled by sin, pride, mine, is, mine are, yours are too. And the Holy Spirit will come and enlighten the eyes of your heart and you will see and feel the wonder of who Jesus is through the truth of God's word. And you will taste and see that the Lord is good. And living water will be poured into your heart. And you'll see his glory, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So that's just, just an example. Okay, but we got to close though. This is good. I hope this is helpful. Just And again, there are lots of other scriptures. But here, here's my final word. You are a soldier behind enemy lines. Okay? Facing sin which can deceive and sin which can overpower. But you have nothing to be concerned about. Okay? Because God has given you the word which will expose every deception. And he's given you the throne of grace. Jesus is there, forgiving, sympathetic high priest, the throne of grace which will give you power over every sin. So, so be encouraged. Here you are. We're 50 miles behind enemy lines. God's rest is there. Here we go. We want to bring as many people as we possibly can. But the word of God will expose every deception and the throne of grace will overcome every sin. The word of God will expose every deception. Use it. The throne of grace will empower, will give you power over every sin. Draw near. And then let's move ahead into the into the rest of God with as many prisoners of war as we possibly can. Okay, let's pray. Thank you so much, Father, for giving us the word. 
which will expose every deception of sin. And thank you, Jesus, that you are our forgiving and sympathetic high priest and that we can draw near to the throne of grace to receive the help we need when we're tempted. Thank you. You've given us everything we need and more. So, Lord, I pray that this week we would be in your word. And I pray that this week when we see sin, we would draw near, we would see you as forgiving and as sympathizing with us, and that we would draw near and experience the work of your spirit changing our hearts so that we are freed and filled. Thank you so much, Lord, for this good word and for your great love for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.